And then I had Acts of the Apostles, the story of the Holy Spirit unleashing the gospel across the known world. And then I looked at the small print and I realized it wasn't just Isaiah, it was Isaiah to the end. (laughs) 17 books, all the prophets. That's the cost of being allowed one session just on Exodus. Well, and then I was sitting here listening to Adam and and he was saying, well, I'm getting to the end of two chronicles and then it's over to Michael. So we've just added in another nine books. So it's not 17. It is, in fact, 26 books. Okay, unfortunately, or fortunately for you, I haven't prepared all 26 books, but I will try and mention them. Okay, I'll get them in somewhere. Right. So there's no hanging about. Let's get going. Big picture, story so far, okay? Day one, we had the creation of the world, God's generous creative love. Then we had freedom of will. Um, We had choice, the choice to love or not to love. We had the fall. Then we had God's choice to love nonetheless. We had the covenant promise to his people. And out of that covenant promise, fulfilling it, we had salvation, in Exodus. And then we have the law, how to live together as God's people under his rule, though not yet his kingship, which comes next, the kingdom, this model of the kingdom that will be under God's kingship. This is going to be important for the next two days. Hold on to that thought. And then kingship, we come to the prophets, what I'll be speaking about now, um, and the prophets, um, the prophets' message of judgment and of hope, which will be worked out in the history of Israel, as we've just heard, through the exile, judgment, and the return to the land, hope. So this is the Old Testament. The New Testament is yet to come. Creation, fall, promise, liberation, law, kingdom, prophets, exile, and return. Each step in God's relationship with his world and his people reveals something new about his nature and about the hope that he offers for us. So what's the context of the prophets? Well, um, almost all the books we're looking at today are prophetic writings. That sentence is now slightly out of date. There's going to be one or two more books that aren't prophetic writings. What's the theology context, the context what's, what's the theology background to the prophets? Well, obviously, we've met prophets already this evening. We've had the first prophets, which appeared when Israel first settled in the Promised Land, often acting as community judges and army generals. We looked at them, Othniel and Deborah and the rest, helping tribes to, tribes to live at peace with each other and, where necessary, to band together against outside threats. The greatest of these prophets was the last, Samuel, who led the whole of Israel from Shiloh with his wise judgments and his stern commands, and who gave to Israel the first two kings of the kingdom that they so longed for, so that they could be like the other nations. Samuel and the two great historical prophets after him, the non-writing prophets Elijah and Elisha, 
were able to act miraculously, like Moses, with the power and the authority of God, healing the sick, raising the dead. And by God's power, they were also able to predict or declare what was happening politically with extraordinary accuracy. However, from the anointing of the first king, Saul, the prophets took on a rather different role. It became their task to remind the kings that they ruled only on God's behalf and had authority to rule only so long as they acted in obedience to him. So Samuel, we heard, brings a stinging rebuke to Saul. Nathan is the one person willing to challenge David for his affair with Bathsheba. Elijah challenges Ahab. And the prophetic writers of the Old Testament follow very much in their footsteps. They speak truth to the king and to the people of Israel. When we come to authorship, there are several complications about identifying who wrote the prophetic books. Some of them are attached to specific identifiable historical characters. Others are unnamed or named but unidentified in history. Some are begun in one historical context and then added to later. And at least one, Jonah, is thought to be a prophetic parable written about a prophet of a previous era. In the end, the actual authorship doesn't really matter to to those who gathered together the Old Testament or to those who reinterpreted it in the time of Christ or afterwards. That's a very modern concept. What mattered was that God had spoken to his people in a specific historical context in ways and words which he chose to use again and again. To be absolutely honest, reading the, the prophets is a bit like listening to a confused elderly relative. I'm sorry, that's not a happy image, but just bear with me. The thing is, if you know this relative's story, especially their early years, you might well find that the, the nonsensical ramblings become clearer. As someone said to me recently, as long as you think of yourself as living in 1948, everything she says makes perfect sense. If you can understand the historical context in which the prophet is speaking, then what they say makes a lot of sense. And that's rather easier for us with the large prophetic books, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel, because you get a lot of storyline in them. But it's much harder with the short books because you get very little story, just, just snatches of prophetic imagery. It really is like hearing the sleep-talking of someone who thinks they're living in a previous generation. So we have to work really hard to understand why they say what they say, why that makes sense. And that takes much more time than I could possibly give to any individual book today. So if you want a taste for it, what you need to do is buy yourself a good commentary on a minor prophet and start studying. The best that I can do for you is to remind you of uh, the historical storyline which Adam shared with us against which these books are set and place them in that storyline. So, the kingdom begins, as we heard, with a united nation under Saul, David, and Solomon. However, after Solomon, it broke into two. The northern ten tribes of Israel breaking away under Jeroboam from the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin that remained with David's foolish and cruel grandson, Rehoboam. 
the northern kingdom did its stupid thing, planted its, um, its two golden calves, and lost its God-centered fo- focus much more quickly than the south still focused on the temp- temple in Jerusalem. But the southern kingdom Uh, Sorry. So when after 170 years, as we were hearing, the first prophets started writing, the different state of the two kingdoms drew from them different commentaries. So we have Amos and Hosea, who are prophesying in the north, and we've got Isaiah and Micah in the south. You might find it helpful from time to time, or to keep a finger in the page of, uh, the appendix page of prophets, which will give you the order against the timeline. In 722, the prophecies against the north came to their fulfillment and the brutal Assyrian Empire crushed Samaria and the northern kingdom. Hezekiah in the south, with the encouragement of Isaiah and Micah, held on to God and survived. As the, kingdoms, as the kings of the south, however, began to put political independence before faithfulness to God, the prophetic clouds darkened around them with the writings of Zephaniah and Jeremiah, Nahum and Habakkuk. Jeremiah, whose life spanned five kings, warned against resistance based on promised support from Egypt, but his warnings were ignored and he saw the fulfillment of his own prophecies and the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin deported into exile. In God's mercy, however, this was not the end. The Jews in exile rediscovered their faith and hope in God with the prophetic encouragement of Ezekiel, Obadiah, and Daniel. And this is where um, the, the tiny book of Esther finds its place one of the missing books between two chronicles and Isaiah. So Esther, queen, um, a a young um, exile woman of uh, the Jews, is chosen by the emperor to become his new queen. For as her her uncle, um, Mordecai, says to her, for such a time as this. And the one book that doesn't actually mention God declares profoundly through its action a deep rediscovering of trust in God for his people in the place in which they now are. And when the political climate is right, encouraged by Haggai and Zechariah, they began to make their way back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And then with further encouragement from Malachi and Joel, more returned under the leadership of Ezra, that's the book of Ezra, and Nehemiah, book of Nehemiah, to rebuild the walls and once again take possession of the city and the land. Nehemiah particularly is a great story to read if you want to uh, read of um, vision and leadership and trusting God Um, in the place of uh, influence but danger. So when we think about genre, um, I've got two genres for my block of books. That's uh, prophetic writing, uh, and then I'll come on to... um, 
uh, on to um, apocalyptic. Um, but just before I do, I'll quickly mention wisdom, the wisdom genre in which the other books um, that, uh, that are in that in-between section find their place. So we have the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, all uh, supposed to have been um, written by, uh, by Solomon, um, sets of Proverbs that he uh, gathered together in his wisdom. Um, Ecclesiastes seems to have been um, uh, the, the, um, the reflections of a rather depressed king towards the end of his reign, wondering what the point was. Um, and the Song of Solomon, a beautiful love song which has been used over and over again as a song of love to God and indeed to, um, of love for his son, our Saviour. One more book finds its place in there, and that's the book of Job. It's very hard to say where Job comes. Its language and its vocabulary are so different to the rest of the Old Testament that some scholars put it really, really early before much of the rest was written. And some put it really late after the rest was written. And there's no way of telling where in between it comes. There are a couple of really interesting connections uh, there are a couple of sections in Job that also appear in Psalms and in Isaiah, but it's not possible to tell which came first, only that one is quoting the other. Job is a wonderful book, um, and uh, the earliest uh, attempt to dig into a, um, a quandary that has beset the people of God ever since the problem of suffering, which is a question, one of the great big questions of Alpha, uh, 3,000 years later. So my genres, um, prophecy and apocalyptic, I look at prophecy first, closely al allied with Hebrew poetry, uh, who's, well, which we primarily find in the Psalms. Um, and much of uh, prophecy like the Psalms, is written in a kind of extraordinary, extraordinarily blessed um, form of, of, of poetry that doesn't require you to, to be able to read the words. Um, so much of our poetry is based on rhymes or meter. And we, we can read it because we can read English. It's very hard to translate English poetry into Hebrew, for instance, whereas Hebrew poetry trans translates very well into English because Hebrew, Hebrew, Hebrew poetry mainly works on the basis of two lines, one line that says something and another line that either says the same thing or expands it or contradicts it. And so as you read through the poetry, the images um, span backwards and forwards. They, they move, they shift, they expand, they contract. A delight to be able to read poetry um, f from God's people so many years later. And this is what's happening in the Psalms. Um, much of it uh, comes out like this, one verse amplifying or contradicting the previous. Here are just some verses from Isaiah taken completely at random. I just opened the book and read. Isaiah 43, 16 to 18. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, 
and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. You see what I mean? You'll see that all the way through Isaiah and, and other uh, prophets if you start to look for it. The one book within my, the set I was given today, which is not actually prophecy, but a lamentation by Jeremiah of the final fulfillment of God's judgment, is in fact an intensification of this same poetic genre. I'll speak a little bit more about lamentations when I get to it later. The other dominant theme or feature of prophecy genre, which we come across over and over again, is the vision or explained picture. Here is Jeremiah discovering the technique. Jeremiah 1, 13 to 15, right at the beginning. The word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a boiling pot tilting away from the north towards me, I answered. And the Lord said to me, well, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I am about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord, their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance to the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. So don't sit facing the north. Sometimes the image relies on a Hebrew pun, as in the previous verse, Isaiah 1, 11 to 12. Note that the Hebrew word for almond, shaketh, and for watching, shoketh, sound much the same. The word of the Lord came to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. The Lord replied to me, yes, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. Well, Jeremiah's most famous image would be of the potter throwing a pot. Do you remember that? The potter is throwing his pot, and then suddenly he decides to break it and start again. And Jeremiah explains this as God's message to his people that he has the right as the potter to change what he does and to recreate. Sometimes the prophet uses the parable, story with a meaning, instead of the vision, picture with a meaning. The most famous one is Isaiah's story about a vineyard which of course becomes a powerful image for the people of Israel. And it's used or alluded to again and again through the prophets, including by Jesus. Well, the parable technique will of course come to its fulfillment, its final um, greatest use um, by Jesus in the Gospels. Jeremiah and Ezekiel take the parable technique one step further, the acted parable. Jeremiah has a linen belt uh, which he uh, hides in the rocks, and he uses that. Um, he also purchases a plot of land as a parable of how one day land will have value once again. Ezekiel takes this to a whole new level of physical theater. He packs his bags to go into exile. He lies on his side in the dust for a year. He shaves his head. All of these make powerful points to the exiles. But it's Hosea who brings the lived-out parable to an unbearable intensity and poignancy. He marries Goma, a prostitute, 
and he tracks his love for her and her various infidelities and penitent returns to him against the faithful love of God for his unfaithful people. Well, as I was saying, there's another important genre found in the prophets, which is going to become important in the period in between the Old and the New Testaments that we don't have in the Bible. There are other books held separately. And will reappear in the Gospel. Adam will be talking about tomorrow. And finally come to its climax in the book of Revelation, which Jip will be talking about on Thursday. Apocalyptic. Ezekiel uses it a bit, and uh, Zechariah and one or two others, um, but Daniel uses it extensively in the later part of his book. Apocalyptic is essentially an attempt to portray religious political disaster in a way that gives full significance to that horror. It's used particularly in times of oppression, when open writing is dangerous, so that elliptical language and coded messages are essential. And its codes include natural disasters, future empires, numbers, monsters, angels. It may seem to us as if apocalyptic is mythological fantasy. But it's better to see it as a, as a kind of underground samizdat, a kind of protest movement bringing um, the hope of a better future to those who are struggling under current persecution. It's a really interesting feature of the church's use of um, a reading of apocalyptic that it's more frequently read and appreciated by the church when the church is itself facing persecution. It's no longer a, um, a jigsaw puzzle or a times crossword to be solved. It becomes a burning um, uh, um, message of hope and encouragement. Um, finally, just to talk about the language context. Um, there's one other factor which makes the prophetic and apocalyptic writings even harder to pin down, and that's because they're written in the Hebrew language. So unlike the poetry which translates really well, um, Hebrew is a much less precise language than Greek, so it allows for lots of ambiguity. Some words have multiple different meanings, which allow entirely different interpretations. And on top of that, because there isn't much of a body of Hebrew writing outside the Old Testament, in fact, there isn't really anything at all, there are substan a substantial number of what are called hapax legomena in the Old Testament. Sorry about that. But these are words which appear only once in the, in, in the whole of discovered writing in that language. So there are words throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, that only occur that once ever. So working out what that word means is very close to guesswork. Although it does help that the Old Testament was translated into Greek in about 200 BC. And they had a rather better idea of what those words meant than we do. Okay. So that's the context. So what were the prophets trying to say? Remember they're speaking to a nation and to kings who have degenerated in their worship of God, who have put their trust in political schemes rather than his protection, and whose behavior has long since abandoned the code that he gave to them. So the principal focus of the prophets is twofold. One, it's a call to turn away from the idolatry of neighboring people 
and to recommit themselves to God in faithful worship. And two, it's a plea to act with integrity and compassion towards each other and, towards each other, and especially to those who are poor and vulnerable. And because so many of the kings led their subjects away from God in both of these areas, as Adam was saying, the volume is slowly being turned up on two secondary themes. They're cranking up the volume on these other two uh, messages. And the first is one of judgment. The people of Israel will be judged for their continual and deliberate disregard of God and his ways. If they continue to insist on independence from him, they will bring on their heads the inevitable consequence of being a people without divine defense, surrounded by nations who would love to subjugate and destroy them. The second theme, however, is hope, because God loves them. Because he loves them, he will never leave them without hope. The hope of a restored covenant, of a greater peace, of the coming of God's spirit, and the sharing in his glory. God will preserve a seed, a root, a shoot, remaining safe through the judgment. And from this remnant, he will rebuild his people. And the way that judgment and hope interrelate in the prophetic writings is very complex. It seems at first as if the judgments against Israel and the other nations are harsh and violent, as if God has finally had it up to here with bullies, with greedy cartels, stripping the vulnerable to feather their own nests, or with his betrothed who is so treacherously, treacherously and constantly unfaithful to him. And these are indeed all images which the prophets use. But continual promises of hope, even to the worst offenders, soften this anger to a deep sadness. Equally, it seems as if at first sight the promises of glory are just triumphalistic beyond belief until we realize that these dire warnings are being applied to the same people. We keep coming back to that um, song that I drew our attention to on Sunday. Um, perhaps, perhaps I did, or to somebody else. Anyway, that song of courage, that Advent hymn, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Rejoice, rejoice, words of joy and delight, but sung in the minor key amidst the reality of sin and God's judgment. Courage and sadness. Because Old Testament prophets were able to predict current events with startling accuracy, we tend to see their future predictions of judgment and hope in the same kind of mechanistic way. Because they predict something that does happen quite often, then when they predict something that will happen, we think it must happen. God's declaration of judgment will happen unrelated to the, the actions or intentions of those who are judged. But the constant declaration of mercy and hope changed the declaration of judgment into a conditional, even where it's unwritten. If you persist, you will be destroyed. Just as we saw in Exodus with Pharaoh, 
This judgment is moving towards you, but you still have time to repent. So this complex interrelationship between judgment and mercy in the heart of God and the actions of mankind is beautifully summed up for us in that jewel of prophetic stories, Jonah, the reluctant prophet. God commands Jonah to preach judgment to Nineveh, the capital and heart of a cruel and godless empire and a culture which has brutalized God's people. And Jonah refuses. Well, you would, wouldn't you? God, why, why should I preach your mercy to a people who deserve to be destroyed, who have destroyed us? Jonah refuses, but God compels him to go. We know how. And so he gets there and preaches judgment. Well, he enjoys that bit. But here's the killer for Jonah. They repent. You can just hear the swear word, can't you? And what's worse, God has mercy. Jonah is so angry. They deserve God's judgment. They should be destroyed. But they repent and are saved. His prophecy of judgment is not fulfilled because they choose to repent. And that possibility remains open to anyone under judgment until the moment when it's too late. Until the moment the train hits you, it is always possible for you to get off the train line, return home to a warm fire, and to the delight of the one who loves you. Hold that in mind as you read the prophetic curses. And so we come to covenant and kingdom, that bipolar theme continuing throughout the prophetic writings. God's kingship is in opposition to the hopeless rule of the kings of Israel and Judah. God continues to save, though his patience is growing shorter. The constant and continuing failure of Israel to keep its side of the covenant is a growing danger to them and an offense to their God. But because God cannot desire, de deny his own covenant love, the promise of hope grows stronger as judgment becomes more imminent. And as I said, these two themes are graphically out, acted out in Israel's own historical experience. As their kings reject God, their kingdom becomes less and less like his, and it pays the price. Division, destruction, exile. His covenant promise of a people flourishing in a promised land in which they are blessed and a blessing to all nations is eroded and then lost in the destruction of Jerusalem and the wilderness of exile. But God's covenant love for them compels him to retain a remnant through whom he will restore his kingdom and his people once again in the place of his choosing. And so a few straggling families return from exile to rebuild the temple worship and the city walls of Jerusalem, the city of God's blessing. Okay, there's my introduction. Now I've got 10 minutes to get through 17 books. Okay, so what can I tell you about them? You're starting on page 753 with Isaiah. A relative of King Hezekiah who comments knowledgeably and influentially into the political situations of his day. Because of the change of linguistic style and vocabulary, as well as a very different political background, it's generally thought, but not always agreed upon, that two sections might have been added later. 
The middle of those two sections, chapters 40 to 55, perhaps by Isaiah, perhaps by a later nameless prophet, is nonetheless the most glorious flowering of prophetic spirit and literature and contain the most powerful and poignant prophecies about the coming of God's kingdom and his king. And especially those two chapter description of the suffering servant, 52 and 53, which so accurately depicts Christ's death. Isaiah is Jesus' favorite prophet, and he quotes him nine times. Then we come on to Jeremiah. I should say I'm going through these prophets in order, and the order that's given is the four major prophets in historical order. You'll see that as they come along. And then all the 12 minor prophets, those are the smaller prophets, also approximately in historical order, though these days there's some thought that they might be in a slightly different order. But basically it's about right. Okay, that will help you. So we're going through history twice, once with the major prophets and then again with the minor prophets. So we've got Isaiah writing at the end of the northern kingdom. Then we've got Jeremiah writing at the end of the southern kingdom. The least appreciated of the prophetic writers, sorry to say, reviled, imprisoned, thrown into a well, left to starve. Nonetheless, his declarations were so compelling that the weak kings at the end of uh, the, the time of the southern kingdom were reluctantly forced to keep on listening to him, even though they hated everything he said. Jeremiah was kidnapped, ostensibly for his own good, right at the end, though against his will, and taken to Egypt, against which he had fulminated so often. It's rather ironic. And from there he wrote a letter of encouragement to the exiles in Babylon, from which our theme verse this year is taken. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to give you hope and a future, plans to bless you and not to harm you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. And the bit that we never say, and will bring you back from all the places, in all the corners of the world where you have been driven on the day of storm and distress. I will bring you back. What a glorious promise by Jeremiah to those exiles. And he prophesied with that letter that after 70 years, they would return to Jerusalem. Jeremiah also speaks powerfully of a new covenant, not written on stone, but written in our hearts. The time is coming. This is Jeremiah 31, 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they break my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. No, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And we're going to see tomorrow how that new covenant prophecy comes to reality. And then we get Lamentations. This is Jeremiah saying, I told you! And it's the most horrendous book of the whole Old Testament. Said to have been written by him when he saw all his terrible prophecies finally coming true and his beloved Jerusalem destroyed. 
It's written in the poetry of the Psalms. I've spoken about that before. But it also uses an extra technique just found once in the Psalms, in Psalm 119, the acrostic. You know what an acrostic is? It's where you take letters and form a word. Well, the particular way acrostic is used in the Psalm, Psalm 119, is this. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So Psalm 119 is divided, it's a huge psalm, huge um, number of verses, divided into 22 sections, one for each letter of the alphabet. When I first read it, I just thought it was kind of like section A, section B, section C, until I read it in the Hebrew and saw that every single line in the first section begins with the letter A, and every single line in the second section with the letter B, and so on down to uh, the final final, uh, letter of the, oh no, it's not, is it? It's final letter of the uh, Hebrew alphabet. Okay, so Lamentations takes up this um, acrostic technique and it does it in spades. So Lamentations has five chapters and each chapter has 22 verses. And each verse begins with the next successive letter of the alphabet. So, so chapter 1 takes you through A to Z, as it were. Chapter 2 does the same thing, 3, 4, 5. But chapter 3, the middle one, does it three times. It is, has 66 verses, and each letter has three, ver- three, each letter has three verses to its letter moving its way through. So it's as if Jeremiah has declared the A to Z of his grief with an intensity of bitterness. But remember this as you read it. In the very midst of all of that grief, in the very middle section of the middle chapter, Jeremiah the heartbroken prophet proclaims his faithful creed of hope in God the Redeemer. Lamentations 3.21 Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And the middle section is an extended um, reflection on that hope. We move on from Isaiah, Jeremiah to Ezekiel, the prophet of the exiles. And he gives us a great number of great images Two of them particularly powerfully used by Jesus. Uh, The first one, God, the true shepherd, who sacks his faithless under-shepherds in order that he might truly shepherd his people with tenderness and care. And secondly, that life-bringing river of the Spirit flowing out from Jerusalem across the land, deeper and deeper, and bringing fruitfulness even to the Dead Sea. Daniel tells the story of four young exiles taken into the service of the emperor. Their faithfulness is blessed by God and they become influential despite opposition. That opposition hardens into deadly political maneuverings, but God saves them from the fiery furnace and the lion's den. Daniel becomes the chief administrator and prophetic counselor to three emperors. And the second half is a sustained apocalyptic vision of the future. Endurance, will give way to hope, and one like the Son of Man will be vindicated. 
Hosea, and now into the minor prophets, back to the northern kingdom. One of the two prophets to the north, the other of Jesus' favorite prophets. He quotes him three times and twice citing Hosea 6.6. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Joel, this is a little tricky. This is slightly like Job. Um, either Joel is one of the earlier prophets describing how the Assyrians came down on the Israelites just like a horde of locusts, or, as is more usually thought now, he's one of the latest of the prophets, um, well after the Israelites returned to Jerusalem, and writing about a plague of locusts, which were just as terrible as an invading army. Which way round? Hard to tell. But bear this in mind... Whichever way you read it, a swarm of locusts can contain up to 10 billion individual locusts. In 1958, Ethiopia lost 167,000 metric tons of grain, enough to feed more than a million people for a year. Can you imagine how devastating that would be for a primitive and fragile agrarian community? How should the returnees respond to such a disaster? they should return to their God. Joel 2.13 Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love and he relents from sending calamity. And God will restore what the locusts have eaten. Joel 2.25 I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locust and the young locust, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent amongst you. And after all that will come an even greater blessing, the outpouring of God's Spirit. Joel 2:28. And afterwards, I will pour out my Spirit on all my people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I think you know where that verse meets its fulfillment. Then we have Amos, the other prophet to the north, a farmer with an urgent message for the king. In the IVP, IVP Bible commentary, we get this historical comment. Facing rising prices on basic goods like wheat and barley, impoverished peasants, farmers, found themselves forced into debt servitude or day labor. Seeing them ground under the heel of their employers and cheated by greedy merchants, selling them adulterated grain, it's no wonder that Amos, the farmer, harangued the rich for their oppression of the poor, the poor sorry, reminding them of their covenant obligations. Corrupt judges and dishonest businessmen can expect no mercy from an angry God. Then we have Obadiah writing a condemnation of Israel's neighboring country, Edom, who had just taken part in the sacking of Jerusalem. The two countries had in inherited their ongoing hostility with each other from their founders. Who were they? Esau and Jacob. Edom had been relying on its rocky crags looking down on Judah to keep them safe the same crags in which the rock city of Petra was later built. But in the end, crags wouldn't and didn't protect them. Jonah, this beautifully crafted story, as I said, a jewel of prophetic literature. Jonah's justifiable xenophobia and reluctant faithfulness is upstaged by everybody that he meets. 
The sailors, the whale, the Ninevites, the gourd, they all give trust to God more than Jonah does. And finally, God himself speaks with gentle rebuke reverberating down through the millennia. God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about this vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. Well, the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. And many cattle as well. Should I, be, should I not be concerned about that great city? Micah, a prophet to the south, spans the growth in power of the Assyrian Empire and straddles the deportation of Samaria. The saving of Jerusalem is attributed by Jeremiah to Micah's preaching to Hezekiah. His prophecy is fragmented, a collection of disconnected prophecies of judgment and hope. But there, is, there isn't any linguistic or internal historical evidence that they were written by different people. They could well have been fragments of the same author's um, different um, prophecies. Interestingly, um, same with Job, Micah has a pas passage almost identical to one in Isaiah, who is his direct contemporary. He also has the prize for summing up the whole prophetic message the most succinctly, one verse. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Nahum, writing a condemnation of Assyria, that most ruthless of nations in the ancient world, who has previously destroyed the kingdom of Israel. This oracle of doom comes shortly before or after Nineveh's destruction by the Babylonians. Nahum's name, Nahum, has a root meaning which includes comfort by vengeance, which would fit Nahum's message quite well. Israel is comforted by the Lord's vengeance on her destroyer. Sad but true. Nahum 3.7 All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? The answer from Israel, no one round here, mate. Habakkuk, a shadowy figure whose identity is unknown, seems from chapter 1, verse 6, to be writing about the destruction of Nineveh and the arrival of the Babylonians in Jerusalem. So that would put him between Nineveh and um, the destruction of Nineveh and the destruction of Jerusalem. He's a devout worshipper of God, but he's one who, like Job, is willing to challenge the God he worships. His question is the opposite of Job's, not why do the innocent like me suffer, but rather why do the guilty, like the Assyrians or whoever, not? This questioning doesn't undermine his faith, but it leads to more courageous commitment. One of my favorite verses at the end, Habakkuk 3.17. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. Courageous faith. Zephaniah, a devout descendant of Hezekiah and therefore a relative of the reigning king, the godly Josiah. His prophecies encourage the king in his reforms and bear a striking relationship to Deuteronomy, suggesting that he might have written his 
prophecy after the book of the law was rediscovered in the temple. Zephaniah also foretells the destruction of Nineveh and the restoration of Jerusalem. He writes one of the most beautiful love songs from God, Zephaniah 3:16. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with his singing. Haggai brings a prophecy to the exiles, encouraging them to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So this is after the return. You can read Zechariah 1 and Ezra 4.6 for cross-references on this. My house and your lives are in ruins, says the Lord, but now you've started to rebuild the temple amidst dangers. I will transform your lives and replace curse with blessing and keep my leader safe. Haggai 2.9. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. This blessing that Adam was speaking of is the final promise of blessing. Zechariah, nearly there, a contemporary of Haggai, possibly returned to Jerusalem with his family, mentioned by Nehemiah and Ezra. The first half of his book is like Haggai, an encouragement to build the, rebuild the temple. The second half is very different, possibly a later edition. It deals with the recurring themes like judgment, blessing through military action, and the leadership of God's people under the humble king, the shepherd, and the pierced one. Interesting. Zachariah is mentioned by Jesus in Matthew as the last of the prophets killed by his own people. And finally, Malachi speaks to the exiles of the house of God which is not yet rebuilt. His audience are not idolaters, but they're those who have compromised themselves by their affluent lifestyle. So Malachi's prophecy is a wake-up call to renewed covenant commitment. The last of the Old Testament writings which... And it, and it foretells the harbinger of the New Testament, Malachi 3.1. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord that you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you delight in will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Well, the prophetic books are, in a sense, the interpretation of the history of the Old Testament, a repeated reflection across many generations of God's message to his people who are wandering away from his covenant. This second half of the Old Testament writings has, have therefore provided subsequent generations with endless material for their own spiritual reflection and growth, especially the fundamental requirements of the covenant and the continuing reapplication of prophecies of judgment and hope as, pe as God's people await their eventual and climactic fulfillment. So not surprisingly, Christ finds in the prophetic books of the Old Testament the basis of his radical teaching, evidenced by the many verses of the prophets which he quotes, but also the prediction of his role. Daniel 7.13 is used by Jesus when he speaks to um, the high priests. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. 
He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You can understand that the high priest didn't respond very positively to that. The major themes that have slowly built up through the prophetic writings provide the direct precursors to the gospel. The inability even of God's chosen people to deal with their own persistent sin, the foretelling of the Messiah, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so, of course, we find in the prophetic books numerous prophecies which find their fulfillment in Christ. From his birth, Micah 5.2, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are very small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are of old, from of ancient times. And Hosea 11.1, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Through to Christ's death, Isaiah 53, 9-10, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And of course, the significance of that, Isaiah 53, 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so we await the final fulfillment of all of those prophecies of judgment and of hope in Christ's second coming. And so when we read the prophets, finally, we find ourselves asking four cyclical questions. Firstly, what did this mean for those who first heard the prophecy. Secondly, what did it mean for Jesus' disciples as they heard it fulfilled in him? Thirdly, what does it mean for us now, looking back on Jesus? And fourthly, what will it mean at the closing of the age? Over the two millennia, since the writing of the New Testament books, there have been ongoing attempts to abandon the Old Testament. I've heard the same arguments used here in South Sea. But the church has always held the Old Testament as an essential part of the Bible, not just as the historical context without which we can't understand the ministry and teaching of Jesus, but also as a fundamental and God-inspired foundation for all that Jesus was and taught, which the Holy Spirit uses over and over again to challenge, encourage, and draw back to God, his covenant people. Got any questions? Write them on a piece of paper and shove them in the question box. Jit, thank you.